Software Engineering Radio, Episode 90, Product Line Engineering, Part 3 with Charles Krüger. This is Software Engineering Radio, the podcast for professional developers on the web at se-radio.net. SE Radio brings you relevant and detailed discussions and interviews on software engineering topics every 10 days. Thanks to our audience and the partners listed on our website for supporting the podcast. Hi everybody, welcome to Software Engineering Radio. Before we get to the actual content of this episode, I do have a couple of announcements. Just wanted to quickly mention that SU Radio now has a web shop, a cafe press shop. Loco Stocker set it up for us. Um, you can buy their coffee mugs, t-shirts, and you know the usual stuff. So if you want to make sure SU Radio uh, gets more well known, is promoted, go there, buy this stuff, and well, walk around with the logo. Thanks. Just some quick reminder that you should go to suradio.net and click on the um, well on the link on the left side, the Get Together link. The Get Together is the uh, open space conference we're organizing together with D. at EX, uh, the German IT magazine. Um, go to the website, look at um, the nice PDF we put together with all the details, and um, well, we would like to see you there. It's important for SE Radio um, to be mentioned on sites like Reddit, Dick, Delicious, or Slashdot. We have uh, put those um, special shortcut links into each episode page, so you just have to click there. So you would really do us a great favor if you'd make SE Radio more well-known by uh, mentioning those uh, certain episodes on those pages and also voting them, them up, because um, most of these pages obviously work by... Um, social bookmarking or other web 2.0 facilities so people have to vote for the content so if one person just submits it and then nothing else happens it's not very useful so please help us uh, make this stuff more well known vote these things up and uh, if you like them of course we don't ask you to vote for crap and you should only vote for the good episodes the ones you like best okay and here is the actual episode my name is michael and my guest today is charles Krueger. Charles Grueger is uh, a big member of the Software Product Lines community. And uh, Charles, why don't you introduce yourself a bit to our listeners? Okay, thank you, Michael. Uh, so I am currently the uh, CEO of Big Lever Software, uh, founder of that company as well. We focus uh, entirely on software product line development technology and methodologies. Uh, we've been doing that work for about uh, six years now and uh, focused on commercial practice and commercial deployments. Okay, and your own background in software product lines, is that the same as the, the company existed, or what is your personal history with product line engineering? So it all started uh, back in the late 80s, early 90s uh, in my graduate research. So I was very interested in software reuse and uh, the technologies around that, and uh, my PhD thesis work at Carnegie Mellon was in um, what today might be called product line architectures. Back then, it didn't have that name, but it was reusable and configurable software architectures. And that's ultimately where my interest uh, started. After I got out of graduate school, uh, worked in a couple of commercial companies, applied some of the ideas, and uh, a couple of them worked better than you might expect. And eventually, those uh, good ideas that were working well in practice uh, were what turned into the company. 
Um, you mentioned the term product line architecture. Uh, I always wonder what is really a product line architecture. I like much more the term reference architecture. Do you distinguish those two? What do you think about this term product line architecture and what, what does it mean to you? So product line architecture, uh, certainly the idea of being focused in a specific product domain, application domain is, is the idea there. Uh, reference architecture is a, uh, probably a, a term that's been used longer. Sometimes that reference architecture can be more of a, a generic uh, architecture that might be used across many application domains, whereas product line architectures tend to be narrowly focused on a very specific uh, portfolio of products within a single domain. But uh, similar intent, uh, for sure. And what, what does a product line architecture, uh, what is it different from a regular architecture? Uh, the product line architecture will look uh, identical to a regular architecture, except for the notion of variation or diversity. So what you want to accommodate in your product line architecture is the ability to say, you know, here's an architect, a part of the architecture that will vary among different products within a portfolio and the ability to have optional uh, structures within your architecture or structures that may come in different flavors depending on the product that you're building. I guess this can be pretty difficult. I mean, if you imagine that you have really different, uh, really very different uh, products that you derive from this uh, product line architecture and you need to document all the variabilities and all the options. Are there any best practices? Have you seen them around in industry? Usually what happens is if you find um, the diversity is becoming too much, uh, there's too much variation, uh, what you may find is that you actually have two product lines uh, or multiple product lines. And, and a lot of times what you'll want to do is go to uh, a what's referred to as a product population where you have multiple families living together, if you will. But you have, then would go to multiple product line architectures that may have more similarity uh, internally within them and then have a family of those architectures that are a population of those architectures that ultimately have some sharing as well. Mm -hmm. But if the commonality, if the common parts of that architecture are not high enough, then you're not going to gain the benefits of the reuse and, and that commonality. Ultimately, that's the, the goal is to, to benefit from what's common and have very manageable levels of variability within there. Is there any rule of thumb uh, about the commonality that you need to have so that the product line architecture or product line approach uh, actually makes, makes sense? What we find, and this is uh, maybe more towards the implementation level, but if you look at how many common files or common modules versus uh, how much, uh, what percentage of the files or modules within a system may vary, uh, we usually find that 75, 80% is a, a pretty typical number. So if you have less than that, you know, if I see somebody that's got less than uh, 50% commonality within architecture or within a, a set of uh, implementation assets, then I start to worry a little bit that the reuse levels are not high enough and there may be some issues. So we look for ways of uh, maybe refactoring or repartitioning or dividing into multiple product lines to get those numbers closer to 75 or 80 or 90%.
An interesting and challenging question that I raised already several times in the past was, well, what is, in your opinion, the key difference between software product line engineering and regular software engineering? Is, is product line engineering just software engineering done right? What is different? How, how would you differentiate the two uh, terms, practices? Okay, uh, definitely a good question. Uh, the way we like to look at it is uh, you do your product line engineering in exactly the way you would uh, manage the entire life cycle of doing development software engineering on a single system. But at every stage within that life cycle, you now need to consider the concept of uh, variability and diversity. And so if you start at requirements, then go through your architecture, design, implementation, test cases, documentation, deployment, whatever your life cycle uh, may be for your software assets and your uh, software development, if at every stage in the life cycle you can accommodate the uh, variability and relate the variability among the different stages in the same way that you would do your traceability for conventional software development, then it all of a sudden becomes very similar to uh, developing software in a, in a very traditional conventional way so the you know again it's it's all about managing very effectively managing that variability at every stage in the life cycle so it's the consequence that we don't need any additional technologies and processes uh, to accomplish uh, succeeding in product line engineering or do we need them what is like your your reasoning here so the reason that our company exists, we have a, a, a tool called uh, Gears that provides the variability management uh, in software assets. Uh, in the early uh, stages of trying these ideas and in my thesis and the first commercial deployments, we tried to use conventional technologies such as configuration management branching or uh, conditionals through IFDEFs or runtime conditionals and configuration files, uh, it turns out that conventional technology uh, trying to then mix in the variability management with these conventional software management uh, techniques creates a lot of complexity. So ultimately what we found is there's a hole in our existing tool set uh, and methodology in software development. And so, you know, the reason the company uh, exists is we created uh, a tool to fill that gap. So you've you have many customers all over the world, and what is what is the state of industry regarding product line engineering? What is common practice today out there? The idea of creating a portfolio of products is not new by any means, and it's not a concept that comes out of the engineering department, the business groups, the the marketing, the sales group all want to have diversity and variations within a product line in order to sell more into more markets and to ultimately make more money. So uh, the engineering groups in response have applied uh, conventional techniques to the best of their ability and to the best practices, but ultimately that's not sufficient. Uh, so the companies that are doing the best, you know, take a first-class method and first-class technology for dealing with product line uh, approach. Uh, but 
most of the companies we go into are, again, using things like the IFDEFs or configuration management branches. Uh, uh, not that there's uh, anything wrong with that. Those are what we have in our toolbox today, and that's what people use, and they use those things very well. But they scale well to, you know, maybe 10, 15, or 20 products within a portfolio. Then the complexity starts to uh, ramp up pretty steeply. And so that's what we find state of the practice. Everybody's doing portfolios of products. Uh, companies typically are feeling a lot of pain uh, and spending a lot of time and energy on the overhead of managing the engineering of a portfolio and that diversity. So, and, and your approach is to solve uh, this complexity and uh, succeed in, in product line engineering with a technology and, and tool approach. Uh, what about uh, organizational issues? What about management issues? What about process issues? What Do you have any impact there? Do, do, do you have any suggestions on those areas? So we have uh, uh, have what we call a three-tiered software product line methodology that provides a simple framework uh, for describing methods, processes, uh, tools, techniques, uh, and a way of capturing best practices uh, at that uh, you know, provides that level of guidance. We're learning uh, you know, as we go. This is still an emerging field, I would say, and so uh, we have customers having very good success. And every time uh, we go in and look at, at uh, what's working well or where they're having challenges in deploying their product lines, we'll capture that in, in the methodology. But uh, So the three-tier approach contains management guidance here and process guidance, suggestions on, on how to deal with that? Yes. So the, the first tier of the methodology primarily focuses on infrastructure, technology, how to integrate uh, variability management in with configuration management and build and those types of uh, techn techniques. Uh, the second tier in the methodology is really where we start to look at the organizational and process issues. Uh, top tier then is more business focused and how do you get your business and your engineering organization working very efficiently together. Yeah, best practices on those areas. Could you could you name one? Some examples. Uh, well, so we, let's look at the uh, the middle tier, for example. So once you do have a very good technology base in place for managing your diversity, then we go into what's called a core asset focused development. So the traditional way of uh, managing product portfolio deployments is you have a team of people that's focused on the release schedule and getting products out the door uh, at a particular time. And so the organization is all around the life cycle of individual products. You'll tend to have teams clustered around uh, products. What we do is uh, sort of flip that 90 degrees and say, what you really want to do is have all of your organizational structures focused around the reusable uh, subsystems, what are referred to as the core assets. Uh, and have no uh, development teams focused on the individual products. So the, uh, uh, the actual deployment of the products is managed through automatic configuration of, of products from core assets. So then you, if I understand that correctly, you totally focus on the core assets. You have uh, some, some derivation rules that you store uh, in your tool and you then uh, derive the products from it. So what 
what stays after this derivation when you delivered it to the customer? How do you know what actually you uh, deliver to the customer? Do you keep a configuration file or, or, or some the rules around in configuration man management? What what is the asset that you keep of a specific product then? Yeah, so in the uh, traditional way of doing a single product, what you would do is have a, uh, for example, a configuration management label or a baseline that you would remember. And that way you can go back and reproduce that product Every file, every byte within every file is 100% reproducible. Uh, when you have core assets uh, from which you're deriving products, now you need an additional step. You, you, know, you take your baseline of your core assets that still have the diversity in them. Then you provide a specification, uh, what we call a feature profile, that says here's the optional features we want in, here's the ones we don't want, uh, those features that come in different flavors. Here's the particular flavor of that feature we're interested in. Uh, and if you take a feature profile, apply it to a baseline of core assets from configuration management, that takes you right back to the uh, same scenario where you can reproduce uh, every byte of every file uh, that gets deployed to a customer. So you get that 100% reproducibility again. Um, the listeners might remember our first episode on uh, product line engineering. And in this first episode, Marcus and I had a discussion about uh, problem and solution space and how to, how to make the hop from the uh, problem space, from the requirements to the, to the solutions, how to do the traceability. Uh, Charles, what is, what is your advice on how to tie the requirements the variability in the requirements with the variability in the, in the solution. How do you trace these uh, requirements then in the solution? So if you have well-defined variation, what we call variation points within your requirements, so you identify and encapsulate, here's a requirement that comes uh, in different ways for different products, uh, and then have those variation points that exist all the way through the entire life cycle, you can add your traceability in the same way that you would in conventional software. So a variation point within your requirements will trace to one or more variation points within your architecture, which will trace to one or more variation points within your um, implementation. So you'll have a many-to-many -many relationship at each, between each stage in your uh, life cycle. Uh, and in the same way that you do your traceability among the common parts of your uh, requirements and architectures and designs and implementations, same way within the diversity. And you can use the identical sets of techniques. So what you need then is this first-class notion of variation point at every stage uh, in the life cycle. I'm very used to, to feature models um, um, as they are, for example, provided by uh, Christoph Czarnecki in his tooling. Um, what is your approach different or, or is, it, is it the same like feature models? What, what are the, the, the fundamental ideas of your approach compared to feature modeling? So we follow the same paradigm. Uh, there will be a feature model. We use that term feature model uh, for managing at that level of abstraction. What is the uh, diversity that exists within the portfolio? So one of the things that's slightly different with our approach is that we model only feature diversity and don't use the feature model to necessarily model all features that are both common and varying. So we're 
getting it down to the essence of making choices among a feature set uh, that will help uniquely characterize each product. Uh, our language for describing feature models is slightly different. We uh, don't follow the FOTA language directly. We use something that we find is more comfortable and familiar for developers. So we use things like set types and enumeration types and primitive types such as integers, strings, uh, characters, booleans. Uh, so things that make it very easy for a developer to move from conventional development into software product line development. Uh, and then what I always do is go back and make sure that we're at, at least isomorphic with uh, what Christoph is doing. I kind of use his work as a, a good standard. We want to make sure we can represent everything that uh, can be represented in FOTA or, you know, Christoph's uh, approaches for feature modeling. And we tend to uh, go beyond that as well and be able to represent more complex features and particularly the uh, feature constraints and interactions. Is there any uh, integration of those uh, two approaches that if people have already a feature model of their uh, domain, how could they reuse it, for example, with the tooling that, that you suggest? Uh, there is. So if you look at uh, you know the uh, various characterizations in a feature model tree or feature model diagram, uh, you can pretty much look at every one of those levels and say, oh, this needs to be converted into a set or this needs to be converted to an enumeration. Uh, ultimately, what we're doing right now, we're doing some work with uh, uh, Honeywell to produce a graphical representation of our language uh, that will look very much like a traditional uh, photo diagram. Uh, there are some people in their product marketing group there that prefer the diagrammatic graphical approach. They're, they're not programmers, so they uh, prefer to interact with the uh, the visual representations. So ultimately, uh, there will be a, a, a way to look at those two things side by side, and they're going to look very similar. Okay, including the hierarchy, because as I understand it, the feature models with the feature tree are typically hierarchies of variabilities of variation points. And, and your uh, language supports, as I understand it, a, a flat structure of variation points. No, it, it will, uh, the, well, so uh, the feature model in our world is definitely hierarchical. So you can have a set type and then a member of that set could be a uh, nested set or it could be a nested enumeration. Uh, so anything that has multiple children can be uh, nested. Ultimately, the leaves of that tree are the primitive types within the language. So you uh, do have a tree structure there. Uh, our notion of variation point, uh, to sort of put a little differentiation in here, feature model for us is all about, uh, again, managing feature diversity. So pretty much every feature in our feature model will be varying, will represent diversity. Uh, and then our what we refer to as a variation point is at the implementation level. So we really don't talk about variation points within the feature model. We sort of assume all of that is varying and representing diversity. A variation point is at the next level below of abstraction where you're modeling variation within some asset. Okay. Is there any web resource available that uh, the listeners could look up and, and follow your thoughts and, and ideas on this topic? 
We have uh, definitely a lot of resources on our website. So there's a, a, a sort of a learn more section there. So you can see online demos. We do live uh, web seminars quite frequently. Uh, many papers we've written on specific topics, white papers, case studies. Uh, uh, so we're very uh, informational in the way that we do our marketing uh, within the company. It's all about doing uh, information, uh, particularly have a newsletter that goes out about once a month, and that's just the latest and absolute, uh, you know, most uh, recent evolving experiences, concepts, case studies that are coming out. So that's a great way to really keep up with the leading edge of uh, what we're learning and finding out. We put the, the link into the show notes. Another uh, topic, well, that's what I find one of one of the hardest uh, topics is how to get started. I mean, many developers and, and many managers feel the need for for a structured and systematic approach to, to product line engineering. But then the hard part is how to get started, how to get your organization convinced, how do you get your upper management convinced, how do you get... Uh, the people convinced that are involved in configuration management, in, in the tooling, in the architecture and everything. How, how do you start something like that? Definitely it's a challenge because it's an emerging discipline is one of the challenges. Um, people are not familiar with it. They haven't heard with it, heard of it uh, yeah, or don't have experience with it. It looks like risk. Uh, and people tend to be averse to that. So you have to at least find one person within the organization who enjoys uh, doing new things, new challenges, who tends to be bored with uh, the way things are done and very dissatisfied with the complexity of, of conventional approaches. So you uh, need a good individual that's going to champion the cause. We've really, uh, I think, uh, pioneered a lot of what we call the... Um, minimally invasive conversion uh, techniques, transition techniques. So we look at how can you start with whatever you're doing today, legacy assets, legacy approaches, and make very small incremental steps that don't require a lot of uh, change, a lot of time, a lot of money or effort, uh, so that you can do something next week that will make you better off the following week. And we found some very good techniques for that. So our customers uh, may invest, you know, uh, set aside two engineers for two months to start a transition process. At the end of those two months, they'll actually have a functioning product line infrastructure in place, addressing a very limited amount of, of the core assets or the existing legacy code. But once you take that first incremental step, Uh, you're a little bit better off. You can use your uh, gains in productivity or whatever, then reinvest that into incrementally transitioning the next step. Uh, and we find that to be a, a very effective approach. So then it becomes less intimidating. You don't have to convince management to take these huge uh, leaps of faith while you're investing you know, hundreds of man hours and man months of effort to try to make a, a transition. On what parts of the system do you focus and, and what kind of assets? On the requirements first or do you try to get some solution artifacts uh, uh, managed properly? We, we go for where the pain is the worst. Where's the biggest problem? Where's the um, biggest 
opportunity for gains. A lot of times that's in the source code, right? That's where you've got the most largest number of engineers, largest number of uh, burn rate man hours going on uh, every week, every month. So uh, typically we'll focus on let's take one subsystem and convert that into core assets or let's take two products out of your portfolio and consolidate two products so that they work like a product line and then incrementally transition in other products. So we find ways of saying um, let's start with a small number of people, either focus on one subsystem or focus on small numbers of products and make the transition at that level. So it really you know, depends, but a lot of times we see people making transitions either around here's one subsystem we think we can tackle without a lot of disruption, or here's a pair of products that we can start with. Uh, they're at the end of a release cycle, you know, it may be another quarter or six months before they release again, so let's start working on those. Pain indicators is another uh, key term and key topic uh, for me. Um, what are some of the most common pain indicators that, that people feel, the situations Uh, when you actually have a chance to convince them to use a product line engineering approach instead of a traditional or, or not so systematic approach? What are those pain indicators? The things we see uh, will be uh, as you start adding more and more products to the portfolio, it becomes more extremely more expensive and more difficult every time you add a new product. So you've sort of get to a point on an exponential curve where you almost hit the wall. You know, you can add your 16th product, but you can never get to 17 because you're so busy thrashing around on those first 16. Uh, so it shows up in the form of defects. So uh, an engineer will go in, fix a defect on one product, and oops, I accidentally broke two others uh, as, as I was doing that because of the uh, entanglement of the, of the diversity um, it, we see things where maybe a company is using a branching technique in configuration management, and they'll notice that engineers are spending all of their time merging across branches within configuration management. Uh, so it's, it's sort of wasted overhead, people doing things that don't relate to adding value and adding features to the product. They're just thrashing around trying to manage diversity and variation and just keeping things coordinated. Now, what kind of domains are best suited for a product line engineering approach? Are there domains like uh, telecommunication, embedded systems, banking or the like that, that have been typically and in the past very intense uh, in, the, in the usage of product lines? Uh, is, is product line engineering suited for any kind of domain? So we haven't seen any limitation in terms of where you can apply the concept. So it's very broad, very horizontal type of concept that applies in all uh, software areas. In terms of adoption, we do find that uh, embedded types of development seem to be more amenable to, to trying and adopting software product line approaches. And I attribute that to the fact that the notion of product line is so clear uh, when you're working in a, a, a domain that has physical devices. So, uh, you know, you get a, 
20 handsets for a cell phone uh, dropped on your desk and, and somebody says write software that runs on all 20 of these different handsets, it's very clear you have a product line problem. Whereas in enterprise software, uh, there are 50 different ways that people will come up with of, of managing the, the variability and the diversity and they don't as clearly see uh, the fact that they do have a product line problem. Now you have the chance uh, that uh, many people, many developers, many software engineers uh, currently listen to you. Do you have anything that you want to across to, to this uh, group of people that you always liked uh, to say? Well, the, uh, certainly we're, we're at a point now in the field where uh, product lines are well understood. Uh, they're proven in practice. Uh, I've never seen a case where you go in and do a study and say, oh, you'd be better off not adopting a product line approach. So um, I think it's to the point now where it will be headed into the mainstream. We're seeing more and more people understanding it, and there's really no reason not to, to go after it. The benefits are always there. Uh, it's very exciting, very challenging, but always uh, very strong benefits come in response to that. So I uh, just encourage people to look very closely at what's available out in the uh, uh, the methodologies and the technologies that are emerging. Look at those success stories and, and find good ways of being one of the first people out there to have another success story. There is going to happen the Software Product Lines Conference uh, this fall in uh, Japan. What can people learn from that uh, at that conference? What do you suggest how people get into the product lines community, how to get started, how to become potentially a member of the product line engineering community? So the uh, first five years or so of the uh, software product line conference, it was all researchers and people coming in and, and everybody there had uh, their view of how to do product lines. Uh, everybody was speaking, nobody was listening kind of uh, scenario. Very interesting. We learned a lot. But over the last three or four years, uh, the conference is now uh, becoming dominated by practitioners. And so you'll go there and the hallways are full of uh, practitioners who are there, maybe experienced or maybe brand new. But, you know, everybody's there away from work, away from email, away from the phone calls, uh, living, breathing, Uh, eating, drinking, software product lines, very uh, uh, way to get deeply immersed, uh, talk to the people who are really making it happen, uh, and it, it's a great uh, scenario. So I'll see companies who come there for the first time, and then a year later, uh, you'll talk to them at the next one, and they'll be doing product line practice and having success. So in terms of deep immersion and really jump-starting an initiative into doing software product lines, it's a great approach. Great. Any final uh, word, any last word you want to say to our listeners? Uh, well, I just appreciate the opportunity to uh, get out here and, and spread the word. That's our mission, ultimately, is to get this out into the mainstream. Uh, again, uh, you know, information is out there. Dig in, be one of the early uh, adopters. And uh, uh, I think the field now is, is at a point where we're seeing very rapid growth, very rapid adoption, and uh, nothing but good things to come. Great. Thank you, Charles. Thank you very much. Pleasure.
Thanks for listening to Software Engineering Radio. If you want more information about the podcast and all the other episodes, visit our website at se-radio.net. If you want to support us, you can donate to the SE Radio team via the website or you can advertise for SE Radio, for example, by clicking on the Dick Reddit Delicious and Slashdot buttons. To contact the team, please send email to team at seradio.net or if it's specific to an episode, please use the comments facility on the website so other people can read and react to your comments. This episode of Software Engineering Radio, as well as all other episodes, are licensed under a Creative Commons license. Please see the website for details. Thanks to Charlie Crow and the Podsafe Music Network for the music used in this show. The song is called Vegas Hard Rock Shuffle. Mm-hmm.